Good morning and good afternoon to those on the East Coast. My name is Jeff Singer. I'm a practicing surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. When the government gets into the business of regulating peaceful, voluntary human activities, no matter how well intended, it becomes susceptible to influence by those with nefarious aims. Occupational licensing laws can and have been used to protect incumbents from competition from new entrants, and they can and have been used to restrict new entrants based on race, sexual orientation, sex, or religion. Since I'm a doctor and I work in the healthcare policy area at the Cato Institute, I've chosen to focus on medical licensing laws in particular. But this phenomenon is not limited to medical licensing and has been seen in many licensed occupations. In the early days, the American Medical Association excluded black physicians and it allowed its state affiliates to discriminate into the 1960s. The AMA and its state affiliates promoted and were instrumental in creating the state-based medical licensing system we have today. The medical school accreditation system we have today and the postgraduate training system we have today. One effect was a reduction in the number of black medical schools in the early 20th century. In the first two thirds of the 20th century, there was a paucity of postgraduate programs that would accept black medical school graduates, especially in the deep South. And in general, blacks were restricted from entering the medical profession. This in turn limited access to healthcare for many blacks, particularly in the deep South. Outstanding scholarship on this topic by Harriet Washington, a writing, a writing fellow in bioethics at Harvard Medical School and an instructor in bioethics at Columbia University, was largely responsible for the AMA formally apologizing to the nation's black physicians in 2008. I should mention that the AMA elected its first black president, Dr. Lonnie Bristow, in 1994, and its immediate past president, Dr. Patrice Harris, was the AMA's first African-American woman president. We're fortunate that Harriet is with us today. Also with us today are Dr. Marshall Mar Lee, a family physician and member of the Council on Clinical Practice of the National Medical Association, an organization established by black physicians in 1895. She received her master's in public health from Harvard. And Jeffrey Myron, director of graduate and undergraduate economic education at Harvard University and director of economic studies at the Cato Institute. So I'm the only member of this panel without any sort of Harvard connection. After we hear from our three participants, I'll moderate Q&A, and I encourage our viewers to submit questions via the event webpage or on Facebook or Twitter uh, or YouTube using the hashtag, hashtag CatoHealth, that's with a capital C and a capital H, hashtag CatoHealth. You can enter your questions at any time during the event, and be sure to visit the Cato Institute event page for links to additional materials associated with this event. Harriet, I'd like you to start off this discussion and share your knowledge about this issue with us. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Um, I'd like to share some slides as well, so bear with me for a moment. I hope everyone can see these. I wanted to point out that the history that uh, Dr. Singer pointed out so, um, so precisely early on is still with us. That's one reason why history is important because history is not only what happened four centuries ago, it's what happened last week. When it comes to the, um, 
The dismissal of African-American healers, it's often been predicated on invoking credentials, credentials that often did not exist, that often were nonsensical, that often were inaccurately applied, but they operated very effectively to separate African-Americans from medical practice. Uh, before most doctors in this country earned MDs, they still went to specialized training or apprenticeship. And it was often a matter of a year in a, in a schoolhouse somewhere or an apprenticeship of a few years to another doctor. And yet, when white doctors began to feel competition from African-American healers, mid midwives, herb men, these healers who brought their knowledge from Africa passed on through generations and began practicing not only among African-Americans, but also among whites. They found that they sometimes faced intense competition, in particular midwifery. Many white women preferred the ministrations of African-American midwives and doctors, and they um, were quick to castigate these black practitioners usually telling them that they were uneducated and very often just saying that they were black, i.e. negresses or mulattresses was enough to, um, in their minds, to invoke a superiority on the part of the traditionally trained white doctors. And yet they did not actually have much more education than did the black people that they were maligning. And um, the fact is that some of the midwives had better records in terms of maintaining the health and lives of women to whom they ministered. And these doctors, as you can see from this quote from Dr. R.H. Whitfield, he would dismiss, they would dismiss that as luck. Okay, so they're doing a good job, but a lucky negress becomes a rival of the most learned obstetrician. So you see that from the beginning, there was competition. And from the beginning, there's an attempt to establish standards, standards that Africans, people of African descent could not meet. And this continued on with um, the animus toward black healers becoming actually very um, hardening toward, um, frankly, the death penalty. Often when a black healer um, had a patient who was lost or was harmed, if the, that doc healer was unpopular or if the local doctors had a dislike for them or felt threatened by him, they'd often accuse them of poisoning and they were actually put to death. Also, African systems of healing differed from many Western systems in that invocation of spirituality and um, attention to social relationships, which now is in vogue in Western medicine. But back then it was castigated by Western physicians as a primitive, emotional, um, inferior because it was based on science. And yet if you look at their own activities and their own journals and their own recipe books dictating the treatments they use, they actually were no models of scientific application themselves. And um, yet they were dismissing as black healers as unscientific and emotional. The same traits that we value now as treating patients holistically were dismissed as African emotionalism and certainly of no value in the medical sphere. And you add to that the fact that there were many Africans who contributed to Western medicine from the very founding of the country. In the colonial era, we had doctors like um, uh, Primus and Caesar, sometimes enslaved, um, always um, lower class, but they actually made very important steps, uh, finding cures for snake bite, finding treatments for STDs. Onesimus actually introduced variolation, the precursor of uh, smallpox treatment to this country. You know, all the, the attention goes to people like Edwin Jenner 
and his variolation methods, but it was Onesimus who taught Cotton Mather how to inoculate against smallpox. And in 1721, this discovery saved the city of Boston in a smallpox epidemic. Death rates were very, very low because doctors had been induced to, um, to appropriate Onesimus treatment, yet they ascribed it to Cotton Mather, not Onesimus. And as time went on, his name was forgotten. Uh, the names of other doctors have been forgotten, largely forgotten as well, uh, like Solomon Fuller, who in Munich helped Alice Alzheimer characterize disease. We understand Alzheimer's now largely because of the work of Fuller. And then William Augustus Hinton, who I'm, I'm happy to say that um, Harvard has belatedly recognized him. Um, by naming a building after him. But there were many of these scientists and physicians important in the medical sphere who made important discoveries which are now not traditionally associated with their names. So there's been a collective, um, you know, a collective forgetting of the contribution of African-American doctors. And that has contributed to um, the sense that they're not important or they're not accomplished in the medical sphere and made it easily for them to be marginalized by licensing and um, other regulations. A little pantheon of some, just a sampling of some of the doctors who helped transform American medicine, but whose names are largely lost to us. So um, by the 1930s, eugenic constraints came into play and African physicians began to be castigated not only for their supposed lack of um, education and training, that was accepted by whites, but also because um, they were seen as inherently inferior, not able to practice science or medicine. Uh, the question of who can be a scientist has um, long been writ large in American history of medicine. And um, the assumption that African-Americans were inherently unfit to be scientists and physicians is something that was reinforced heavily during the eugenic era. So the Flexner Report, um, as has been ably documented already, um, there's some important things about that report that I think are, we need to talk about. And that is that the AMA actually committed, commissioned the report. It was conducted by Abraham Flexner, who had an office in the AMA, was accompanied by an AMA official. And um, he not only um, denigrated all, all the African-American medical schools as substandard and recommended that only two be saved, only two is worth saving, and only those two were. But he also made dictates about the nature of African-American physicians, stipulating that they should only be sanitarians and not be allowed to practice specialties, not be allowed to conduct research. In fact, that they should only practice under the guidance of white physicians, and they should only be allowed to practice among other African-Americans. Um, his report deemed um, what he called the untrained African-American doctors as dangerous and stipulated they should only be able to practice among white doctors. So licensing was actually quite overt in this case. The stipulations about um, who could be admitted to medical practice had a very heavily racial component and were very damning of the larger group of African-Americans. And then of course, um, professionalism is what's invoked very often. The desire to have fewer physicians uh, spoke to professionalism, elevating the profession. So elevating the profession also entailed excluding African-Americans. I'm not sure it's as accidental as it's often discussed. I don't think that um, adopting a policy where a clearly foreseeable exclusion of a racial group 
is can be dismissed as something that was um not intended to um be racist, not intended to operate against the racial group. It's quite clear that it would operate against the racial group. Quite clear it'd be used that way. And also, um, it was not accurate very often because, for example, when uh, they refused to seat the black delegation at the AMA first AMA meeting, they invoked the fact that, well, you allow women, you allow um, irregular practitioners, but they had admitted other schools that also admitted Thompsonists and hydrotherapists, other irregular practitioners. So it wasn't that. It was actually the fact that these were black doctors. That's why they didn't admit them. Also, in the physician roles, the AMA would designate black physicians with the capital, maybe it was a lowercase letter C, for colored. They found, they thought it was quite important that people should know that yes, these doctors are indeed MDs, but they're colored MDs. So um, exclusion was a part and parcel, was part of professionalism. And I don't actually see that as an accident. Medical segregation, of course, was operated not only against physicians not having a place to practice, but operated against their image. Um, they were viewed as substandard even by some Black people who reasoned that, well, they're not allowed to go into the hospital. My doctor can't follow me in the hospital if I need treatment. He must not be as good as other doctors. And because they were barred from board certification and other specialty practice very often, sometimes they didn't have the skills of other doctors. And this operated against their, um, their professional stature. So on uh, 1960s found um, African-Americans picketing the AMA as another racist organization because of its refusal to address the fact that many Southern um, um, constituent societies were barring black people, which meant that they could not join the AMA. And the AMA basically said, our hands are tied. You know, we can't tell these, um, these other smaller groups what to do. As one person pointed out, I think her name was Martha Vandrell, she said, but if they had, if these had been uh, groups that were admitting chiropractors, the AMA would have quickly found a way, you know, to resolve it. So they refused to take action that would allow African-Americans to join the society. And um, when I spoke earlier of the fact that history is also what takes place today, this belief that African-Americans um, are inherently unfit, inherently unable to be scientists and doctors persists. We see it in behaviors like when African-American doctors try to help um, ailing people in public spaces, they're often challenged. Um, we've read at least three or four accounts of um, doctors on airplane flights trying to help a pa passenger in distress, only to be asked, are you really a doctor, to have their credentials demanded, even though policies don't require that. And even after they present credentials, they're often questioned and not allowed to assist the passenger. The treatment of our African-American surgeon generals has been troubling to me. Um, I remember that um, Regina Benjamin um, got a great deal of attention about her weight people calling her obese, which she was not, but speculating that somehow her not having what they considered a, an acceptable weight affected her ability to practice medicine, affected her ability to be a good surgeon general. Um, I wonder if you know male physicians are gonna be treated to that same scrutiny, but in any event, it's a credential that doesn't seem to be you know equally applied given that most women in this country do fall into the category of overweight. 
and Eldis is forced to resign after undertaking what I thought was a perfectly acceptable public health measure of speaking about masturbation and encouraging that it be discussed with young people. Um, Benjamin Carson, um, even though he's chief of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins at 33, once he was elected, journalists who don't agree with his politics began um, went beyond his pol political um, um, musings to castigate him as uh, his credentials as a doctor. You re I read many accounts of people saying he could not have been that good, looking for things in his past, looking for lawsuits, et cetera, to um, basically undermine his credibility and question his credentials as a physician. It's something that is done far too often. And um, anyone who wants to know more about it can read these um, excellent books that go into great detail about the struggle of African-Americans to um, achieve licensure and respect um, despite their credentials. Thanks so much for listening to me. Thank you very much, uh, Harriet. You'll see that people are looking at my photo because we're having some technical difficulties with my image. Marshall, you're an, you were active in the National Medical Association, which was created during a time when blacks were ex excluded from membership in other medical organizations. Could you please tell us about the NMA, the role it has played, as well as the role it plays today? Yes. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for this invitation. My name is Dr. Marshall Lee. I am a board-certified family medicine physician in Wilmington, Delaware. I also serve as the um, as a um, on the National Medical Association Council on Clinical Practice, and I am the vice president for Delaware's local chapter of the National Medical Association. It is indeed an honor to have been invited to speak with you today about the rich history of the National Medical Association. For over 125 years, the National Medical Association has been the collective voice of African-American physicians and the leading force for justice and parity in medicine. The NMA was founded in 1895 during an era in the United States history when the majority of African-Americans were disenfranchised. The segregated policy of separate but equal dictated virtually every aspect of society. Racially exclusive Jim Crow laws dominated employment, housing, transportation, recreation, education, and even medicine. Under the backdrop of racial exclusivity, membership in America's professional organizations, including the American Medical Association, were restricted to whites only. The AMA determined medical policy for the country and played an influential role in broadening the expertise of physicians. When a group of black doctors sought membership into the AMA, they were repeatedly denied admission. Subsequently, the NMA, the National Medical Association, was created for black doctors and health professionals who found it necessary to establish their own medical societies and hospitals. In addition to being barred from admission to the American Medical Association, black physicians were listed in the AMA's directory of physicians as colored, as Harriet mentioned. This made it more difficult, if not virtually impossible, for black physicians to obtain my practice insurance and credit. The, discriminatory, the discriminatory practices and policies of the nation at the time of the NMA was founded, manifested countless examples of the inadequacies of segregated healthcare systems. 
A priority item uh, on the NMA's agenda was how to eliminate disparities in health and attain professional medical care for all people. The NMA was born out of necessity. It was conceived in no spirit, conceived in no spirit of racial exclusiveness, fostering no ethnic antagonism, but born out of the exigency of the American environment. The NMA extended equal rights and privileges to all physicians. Although the NMA has led the fight for better medical care and opportunities for all Americans, its primary focus targets healthcare issues related to minority populations and to the medically underserved. The NMA remains committed to improving the health status and outcomes for African-Americans and disadvantaged. I would like to briefly highlight the disparate effects of the Flexion Report, as Harriet also mentioned. The publication of the Flexion Report in 1910 had an immediate and enduring impact on the training of African-American physicians in the United States. The Flexner's Report's thesis that the country needs fewer and better doctors was intended to normalize medical education for the majority of the United States physicians but its implementation disproportionately obstructed opportunities for African-Americans pursuing medical education and restricted the production of physicians capable of addressing the health needs of a nation that would grow increasingly diverse across the century. Prior to the Flexner Report, there were at least seven black medical schools. All but two medical schools were still in existence in 1923. This has had long-lasting impacts of Flexner Report, including the lack of diversity in the physician workforce that we see today. Despite African-Americans comprising approximately 13% of the population in the United States, we account for only 5% of the physician workforce. Physician workforce has been shown, um, for physician workforce diversity has been shown to improve clinical outcomes, trust, and patient satisfaction. I want to also highlight the fact that medicine played a major role in the civil rights movement, but largely outside of the American Medical Association. Physicians in the National Medical Association organized and participated in civil rights marches. Physicians played a role in picketing lines and patient advocacy. They advocated for Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the NMA was the lead medical organization in support of the passage of Medicare in 1965. The 1965 Civil Rights Act, Act eventually outlawed discrimination in government-funded health programs and represented that hope that African-Americans would enjoy improved healthcare status. For the first time, African-Americans gained access to healthcare through Medicare and Medicaid and the professional staffs and patient populations at hospitals were desegregated. The AMA remains committed to improving the health status and outcomes of African-Americans and the disadvantaged. This slide highlights a few of the many health equity statements and advocacy efforts that the AMA has recently supported. This includes an advocacy for an equitable distribution of a safe and effective COVID-19 vaccine police brutality, gun violence, health workforce diversity, and support for HBCUs. 
This concludes my presentation, and I look forward to answering your questions during the Q&A period. Please check out the NMA's website to learn more about our organization. Thank you. Thank you, Marshall. Uh, a major reason that I asked Jeff Myron to be with us today is to provide a broader understanding of how occupational licensing laws and government, government regulations in general, while not racist per se, can be used by people uh, for sinister purposes. So I'm going to turn it over to you now, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff, very much. And thanks to my co-panelists for their information and presentations, which are incredibly interesting and important. The point I want to discuss is mainly an elaboration of what Jeff said at the beginning. Uh, and it's the idea that the impact of medical licensing on racial justice is just one example of a much broader phenomenon. Laws, government policies broadly, put power into the hands of government agencies and their employees, sometimes also into the power into the hands of private actors. Unfortunately, some government actors are biased against minorities, women, particular origins or ethnicities, and so on. And these individuals can use the power from these laws to impose that bias in ways that they would not easily have been able to do in the absence of the laws. Now, some of the relevant laws almost certainly had explicitly racist origins and or they have ongoing racially tinged intentions. We'll discuss examples in a, in a minute or so. At the same time, some of the kinds of laws and policies I'll discuss did not have an obvious or a known racial motivation, but they still have racially disparate impact because their negatives are greater for people with low incomes who are, unfortunately, in our society now, disproportionately minority. Either way, whichever was the original intention, and there are many cases where it might be difficult to determine the exact intention, or they may well have been a range of intentions, Either way, the crucial fact is that individuals with racist or sexist or other inappropriate inclinations would have much less ability to impose that bias, to impose those perspectives on the relevant groups if it were not for certain kinds of laws and the accidental but dis substantial disparate impact that occurs in many other cases would not exist if these laws did not exist in the first place. Now, we need to note that if you believe a particular law is overall an important, a critical policy, you might argue that we have to tolerate the negative aspect, aspects, such as disparate impact by race. Laws against murder, as an example, might be investigated in some cases in a biased way because some police officers or detectives have racial bias in their outlook. That is, they round up the usual suspects and the usual suspects tend to be a minority. But few people would conclude from the fact that we can't guarantee non-racial enforcement, non-racist enforcement of murder laws, that we should therefore not have any laws at all against murder. Instead, most people would probably say, let's figure out a way to limit any racist impact of bans on murder. And that's a fair point. Okay, No law is going to be entirely perfect. That's a reasonable perspective to raise. At the same time, libertarians would argue that a broad range of laws with the properties I've just described, okay, don't make sense in the first place. In that case, their adverse racial impacts are particularly problematic and should be considered major strikes against them, even if such laws have some desirable effects and may have had non-racist uh, or, or benign or even benevolent intention. To illustrate that, let's just look at a few examples. 
In my view, one of the most important examples of other kinds of policies beyond licensing is drug prohibition. First, drug prohibition unquestionably has a racist history. The motivation for many prohibition laws against alcohol, marijuana, opium, cocaine, other drugs, it was explicitly linked to concern, fear, desire to push away or oppress uh, groups associated with those particular substances. The Irish in the case of alcohol, uh, the Chinese immigrants in the case of opium, Mexican-Americans in the case of marijuana, African-Americans in the case of cocaine in the early 1900s, and so on. And it's almost inevitable that when you put power in the hands of police to enforce a victimless crime, where all the participants are willingly engaging in that alleged so-called crime, that you have empowered the police to interfere in ways that allow them to express racist tendency by those police who may be racist. I certainly don't want to assert that all police are racist or anything like that, but some police inevitably were going to be racist and now they have the power to express that racism okay, because of laws against drugs. Once you have a law that says it's illegal to have a joint in your pocket, a police officer can simply assert, I know that uh, teenage black Americans who wear their baseball caps on backwards are likely to be carrying drugs so I can stop them, frisk them, harass them and engage in other inappropriate behavior. And of course, this reasoning that laws against victimless crimes empower the police in a way that can be misused and will get misused by some fraction of the law enforcement agents, it extends to all sorts of other uh, prohibitions, like those against prostitution, against vagrancy, against gambling, uh, and so on. A very different kind of example okay, is land use restrictions, which of course drives up the cost of living, especially in cities, okay, and has made it very difficult for uh, lower income Americans to live close to work uh, and, and enjoy the amenities of living in cities. Some of the examples of land use restrictions indeed had some racist motivations. Others, or the motivations of many people who advocated them, may well have been benign. They just wanted more parks. They wanted more beautification. They didn't want they wanted zoning so that someone couldn't put a, a gas station next to your house in the suburbs. But nevertheless, all these policies raised cost, made it difficult for people of low income, and therefore had a disproportionate impact, a disparate impact uh, on minorities. A different kind of example is TSA screening. Again, the main goal, most people's objective in having TSA do screening for airline flights was to make flying safe. But as with drug prohibition, Current TSA procedures put a lot of discretion into the hands of the TSA agents, some of whom will unfortunately apply that power in a biased manner, leading to at a minimum a unpleasant experiences for blacks or minorities who are traveling, in some cases delaying their flights and all sorts of things and things like that. A completely different kind of example is public schools. Now public schools are of course well-intentioned and most people in, would endorse having the government help everybody be able to get a basic education of say K through 12 or something like that. But the particular way that we do it okay, means that people are forced to consume that benefit, that government subsidy for education in their local neighborhood school. And that's going to disproportionately force uh, low income people who are disproportionately minorities to consume lower quality schools in um, more problematic parts of major cities and things like that. Whereas providing that benefit in the forms of a voucher would empower everyone to seek out the best school without much, nearly as much regard for the locational uh, constraints. Voter ID laws okay, is a case and is an example worth considering. Those are very 
currently being currently being hotly debated, they're almost certainly going to have a disparate impact. And in this case, the motivations quite plausibly were attempts to discourage voting by minorities and other groups more likely to vote for uh, the Democratic Party. So not only was there going to be a disparate impact because of the pattern of who has multiple IDs and things like that, but there may well have been some intent uh, that was racist in those particular jobs. One last example is minimum wage laws. Okay? This is a case where undesirable laws are giving power to private actors, not just government actors. In a competitive marketplace, roughly speaking, employers have to ask people, have to work hard to get people to come work for them because they're just paying them just enough to make it worthwhile to go take the job. When there's a minimum wage, it makes the wage higher. The workers who keep their jobs get a surplus. The workers who don't get jobs, who lose jobs from the minimum wage, okay, are therefore very willing to work. Okay, they're all willing to take any job and employers can then take their pick of which of the workers who might be unemployed by the, because of the minimum wage they want to choose. And so those employers who might be racist have much more opportunity to exercise that bias. The bottom line is that for policies that definitely make sense, the trading off of thinking about racially different imp disparate impacts versus other benefits might be messy and complicated. At a minimum, one can't rule out okay, that there will be some cases where the disparate impacts are something that's hard to eliminate okay, without much more care and design of the policies. But most policies are not in the character, in the category of definitely making sense for a whole set of reasons, and they exacerbate racial inequality in a variety of ways. So a libertarian policy approach has broad benefits, including in particular, less racial inequality. Thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Jeff. Before I move on, uh, Harriet, do you have anything you wanna comment about regarding to what the, uh, either of the previous two speakers had to say? Well, um, Dr. Lee, I was blown over by all the detail in your talk. Thank you for sharing all of that. And Jeffrey, you know, this is, um, it's fascinating, but I find um, there's one point at which I, I really, um, I often kind of stumble a bit. And that is that the invocation of racism, the invocation of people's state of mind and intent. I always find that a bit problematic because it puts the burden of proof on someone to demonstrate a state of mind that can't always be demonstrated. I don't always know what's motivating me to do things. So it's difficult to um, project and understand what motivates someone else to do. But what is very often clear are the foreseeable um, results of a certain policy or action. And so I'm always more comfortable talking about that. Um, in most of the cases you mentioned, the results, uh, the racial in disparate impact is clearly foreseeable. And um, I just think it's a lot more fruitful to place energies there. Jeff, should I respond for a second? Yeah, yes, please, please go ahead, Jeff. So I completely agree that it's very difficult to establish motivations, and it may not be fruitful in all settings to discuss motivations as opposed to impacts. But I guess I'm sort of nudging back against a view that one hears fairly often that there's no actual racism in society. It's simply that certain laws accidentally have a disparate impact. And that doesn't seem right to me. 
I think that there is lots of auxiliary types of evidence, admittedly, many cases hard to quantify and be completely precise about, that some people are indeed racist or will be racist in, in some situations, and that it's useful to know that those attitudes played a part in certain policies because that, in my view, should help to automatically or at least play a big role in discrediting such policies. But you know, overall, I take your point. Totally, totally reasonable point. Yeah. I think that refusing to place the burden of proving that um, an intent is racist, in addition to proving the disparate effect, um, is not the same thing as discounting racism. I think by the environmental racism movement, when Robert Buller first mounted lawsuits in Texas, clearly detailing the foreseeable effects of uh, suspending zoning laws and placing uh, Superfund sites in middle-class African-American communities, they, uh, they lost in the courts and they were consistently challenged by courts who said, yes, you've shown that these harms happen. Yes, you've shown that the policies and laws directly led to them, but you haven't shown that the people intended to be racist. That was an additional burden that just couldn't be met in that case. So that's, it's that kind of thing that I think we need to bear in mind. Any, Marshall, anything you want to say before I move on to taking questions? In medicine, um, I don't think our intent, um, even in medicine, can you hear me okay now? Yes, yes. I'll come back. Okay. Even in medicine, no, our intent is not to um, completely eliminate bias, but because we know that bias are innate to the human ex existence. But our um, intended medicine is to look through policies um, with the equity lens and to reduce the impact of those biases and make people more aware of their biases. And in the same token with racism, I'm not sure if we're going to completely be able to eliminate racism or um, eliminate racist individuals, but we need to establish policies and metrics so that we can identify the impact and reduce the, the impact of racism and biases in medicine. And so I agree with both our speakers that intention matters, but I'm not sure if we can completely control intention, but we can control the impact of those policies. Okay, I'm going to take some questions. Uh, we've been getting questions piling up. Anybody who has questions, please, uh, you can submit them by our event page or Facebook or Twitter or YouTube and use the hashtag Cato Health, capital C, capital H. Um, there's, I have one question, actually, is probably worth directing first to Jeff Myron. Uh, this is from Donnie Darko one on YouTube. Does this still go on openly every single day in other industries? I think you sort of talked about that, but you might want to elaborate. Uh, the the rate using, I assume, this the uh, Donnie Darko means uh, using uh, law regular regulations and licensing laws to uh, affect uh, racial disparities to, to intentionally. I would say that the degree to which it's happening is different in different industry, different licensing industries, because of the supply and demand pressures. In the case of medicine, okay, there is a huge gap between the demand and the number of doctors and nurses that are licensed currently. And so the scope for the 
disparate impact and the discrimination is really, really large. Law is not nearly so great. Then on the other hand, there are some licensing laws which are directed explicitly at categories of services that have traditionally been provided by, say, uh, Black Americans, hair braiding, and where one can easily imagine that the motivation and the impact, and whether or not we talk about motivation, the impact is going to be directly okay, on Black people who are supplying hair braiding. Many of their customers would tend to be Black, and that's to protect the beauty salon sector and force people to patronize this part of the sector that is mainly supplied by whites. Um, this is a question I'll, I'll, I'll answer a part of, but I'll invite uh, Harriet and Marshall to comment as well. Uh, Val Zudans on Facebook says, is it true that state licensing is no longer the barrier to limit the number of doctors? It's the number of government funded residency spots. I'd like to say that actually there, there seems to be a, a surplus of residency spots. Many spots go unfilled. That was recently reported, actually. Texas has a significant number of unfilled residency spots. Now, the locations of those residency spots may not be the ones desired by applicants. Uh, but I invite, start with you, Marshall. Do you agree with me about that? And do you have anything you want to say about that? I agree. And um, prior to my current role, I was actually the branch chief for um, graduate medical edu education at the Health Resources and Services Administration. So I studied a good amount of health workforce shortages and um, the distribution in, in the United States. And as you mentioned, Jeff, there are openings of residency spots and and um, in southern states and other rural areas, there are openings typically in primary care that go unfilled each year. And as the number of um, medical school slots have continued to increase, it is um, accurate to say that there has been a limited um, increased expansion of residency spots. And so the Teaching Health Center GME program is one extension of residency spots, which was meant to increase the number of rural residency programs and other residency spots in underserved areas. But as you know, um, the funding for that program is typically limited and has to be re-approved um, regularly. And so those funding streams are not stable. And so there are still a number of factors the number of residency slots are one factor if you want to go into specialty areas and want to go to larger cities. But I would also say that the current board and licensing um, requirements are restrictions. As a medical student, as a recent graduate residence, resident, I had to try to find money to pay for my board exam. And I actually remember not having enough money to pay for my board exam after moving to a new city for residency. And I went to the pawn shop trying to chain, um, um, trade in my jewelry for money in order to pay for my um, board exam. And they wouldn't give me enough money for my board exam. So I actually had to take out a new credit card and just to pay for my board exam. And so for students who are from socioeconomic um, backgrounds, um, disadvantaged backgrounds, board exams, the licensing exams, and all the tests are, are still a great barrier to entry for students from those um, similar backgrounds. Harriet, do you want to you you want to say something about that, or I have very little to add, but um, I do want okay. to point out that one question I have is that further back in the pipeline, um, I wonder about the tests that are administered in order to um, uh, determine medical school acceptance, um, the MCAT, other tests. Um, 
I think there's a dearth of evidence that these actually translate into improved clinical success or improved professional success. And yet these are very effective, you know, barriers for some in terms of gaining access. It's particularly concerning in view of the presence of African-American males in medical school. Almost all of the um, advances in medical school admission come from African-American women, but African-American men still have a very low rate of acceptance and presence in, um, in medicine, far lower than it should be. And um, I just wonder about some of these um, credentials established to um, determine who's going to have access and entrance. Um, this Thank is a question I'm going to oh, go ahead. Go Thankfully, ahead. because pipeline programs are so important, but I did not take the MCAT. Um, Brown Medical School has an early identification program with my HBCU in Mississippi, and we know that many of those exams have limited predictive value on the quality of care that physicians will ultimately provide. And there has to be more investments in the K through 12 pipeline, as you're mentioning, if we want to increase the number of African-American physicians, um, especially for African-American males in medicine. So I agree, thank you, Mary. I'm gonna direct, I'm gonna start uh, this question first to Jeff Myron, and then of course, anybody else is welcome to chime in. But this is relevant to what we're talking about as well. There was an earlier, the question is from Anonymous. There was an earlier Cato forum on private third-party certification of healthcare workers. Would this help to reduce racial disparities and barriers? Jeff. My answer would be it depends whether that private third-party adjudication uh, is been licensed and created and made a monopolist by government or whether there's a competitive marketplace in such adjudication. If there's a competitive marketplace, then I don't think you'll get the same degree of negative effects that we see from the current system. If in fact, government is just replacing the current licensing system by an adjudication system that has rules imposed by the government, then I'm not sure it would be a major improvement. Any, anybody else interested in saying anything or before I go on to the next question? Kat Murdy has a question for Harriet, and I got the same question myself, by the way. She wants to know, what is a Thompsonist? <laughs> when I, in your presentation, <laughs> you talk about Thompsonist. I'm not familiar with that term either. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, I've forgotten. I once knew it in great detail <laughs> 13 years ago. <laughs> I looked it up for um, medical okay. apartheid, and it's one of the um, many bits of useless information that have escaped me. Sorry about that. Okay, here's a very interesting question uh, from Fred. Uh, and he says, could someone speak of the role of mutual aid societies in late 19th century, early 20th century, and how they were supplying medical services to African-Americans who were discriminated against in most hospitals in the 1900s? For example, the Knights, the Knights and Daughters of Tabor, these societies were destroyed by licensing laws and the AMA. Uh, Harriet, do you know anything about that? No, I haven't written about that. It sounds fascinating, though. Anybody know it? Marsha? Marshall? No? I, I don't. Okay. But I well, that, sound, that sounds, that, that, that does sound interesting. Uh, okay. And uh, Kat also, Kat Murdy also asks, uh, the black maternal mortality rate in the United States is three to five times higher than 
and that of other races. Can you please speak to the reasons behind that and how it can be addressed? So when I start with that with Marshalla. Yes, this issue is very near and dear to my heart as a physician who's actually afraid to have my own children because I'm afraid of becoming a statistic. It's an area that I hope that we find more insight to. But we know that the maternal mortality epidemic is multifactorial, has a lot to do with the social determinants of health, but also we know the impact of racism and bias um, providing disparate care for Black women is, is a major factor. And so we know that oftentimes our Black women are not listened to. We know Serena Williams, the list of um, Black women who have reported having disparate care, reporting issues to the doctor and not being listened to. I don't know what the cause is, but I can say that they are um, being provided disparate care. And that's why that conversation about intention earlier I don't know if people are having implicit bias, explicit bias, but what I can tell you is that there are different levels of care that are provided to black and brown women. And so that's why it's so important that we instill um, evidence-based medicine and, and, and routinely measure and, and evaluate if black women are being provided different levels of care. Um, and so I'm not sure if I answered the question, but we're learning more and more about it, but we know that the social determinants of health and bias play an impact in the maternal mortality epidemic, as well as a lack of diverse um, positions. Okay, nobody else is interested in chiming in on that one. Um, I just want to okay. say that anonymous there's a confluence asked, of, oh, go, go. <laughs> there's a confluence yeah. of factors poorer health care, but, the, but there's also the fact that the poorer health care is not only the care that's received by the, by the pregnant woman. It could also um, speak to the care that was, was received by her mother, her mother's mother. Nancy Krieger at Harvard did studies showing that um, children, for example, born in women who had grown up in uh, Jim Crow states had poor, poor outcomes. And so there are it's very important, I think, for us to expand the research agenda here. I, I see there um, a lot of focus on potential genetic factors and a lot of appropriate, very appropriate focus on um, social determinants of health. But there are also environmental factors that tend not to get um, much scrutiny. And yet the few that I have looked at seem potent. So I think we need to expand our view when we're looking at this issue and understand that it might not be something that's um, immediate, but something that has historical roots, literally. Um, Anonymous asks, wasn't the Flexner report designed to eliminate inadequate medical education, not as a licensure project? Um, uh, I, Marshall, you want to say something about that? And, and this goes to one of those intentions. I wasn't around when the Flexman Report was um, commissioned, but we know that the immediate effects after the report directly impacted licensure. So I'm not sure exactly what the intention of the report was and stuff. So. Okay, this is an ideal question for Jeff Myron, um, also from Anonymous. <clears throat> Even given that licensing is often used to prevent competition with racist outcomes, what indications are there that a more free market system would be less racist? Well, 
The indications that a more market system would be less racist is from a variety of sources and from sort of basic economic reasoning. In a world in which some employers are trying to exercise racist preferences in their hiring, they're putting themselves at a competitive disadvantage. They're raising their labor costs by only hiring from a subset of the available workers. And so in, under, this, under this theory, market competition will tend to drive out such racist employers because they face higher costs than the employers who are less or non-racist. Now, there's lots of evidence that in fact is consistent with that. I talk about this in a class I teach at Harvard. There are a number of papers over the years. There's evidence from various industries that competitive pressures have pushed employers to start hiring okay, minorities, Black Americans, and so on. Okay? An example that many people are familiar with, but certainly not the only example, is Major League Baseball. Okay? It was completely segregated. There were white leagues, Major League Baseball, and the Negro Leagues. And then one uh, owner in Major League Baseball they decided to hire Jackie Robinson. He's the first black American to play in Major League Baseball. Okay? And he happened to also be the best player in Major League Baseball and the Dodgers started beating everybody else. And so other owners didn't wanna lose and they imitated and started, started hiring more players away from the Negro Leagues. And over a period of 10, 20 years, they became substantially more integrated. And there are many other examples along the same lines. Um, Anonymous says, can we extend our thinking to the current battle around a scope of practice with respect to MDs, DOs, nurse practitioners, and physician assistants? I'll give my two cents worth and then invite anybody else to, to answer. I, you know, this is, I, I think the, the scope of practice battle is an example of how um, licensing laws restrict uh, entrance uh, competitive new entrants and protect incumbents. Um, there are many uh, people who can uh, offer services such as nurse practitioners or physicians assistants. Uh, not necessarily, they're not necessarily as sophisticated as physicians, but for, for a great many healthcare services, they're excellent. And um, yet in many states, they're not allowed to uh, provide uh, the services for which they've actually received training. And of course, this is to the detriment of patients, particularly patients who may not have the money for uh, an MD or DO, but do have the money for a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. So um, that's my that's that's my comment. And anybody else interested in saying something about that? Um, Harriet, looks like you want to say something. Do I? Yeah, um, oh, I thought I thought you were nodding. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> okay. I was listening. Okay. Oh, okay. Marshall, you're a physician, so what's your take on that? I just know the um, extensiveness of a medical education, and oftentimes we spend time researching a lot of zebras, and oftentimes you don't know what you don't know until you don't know. And so I just wish that our professional medical organizations will work collaboratively together to figure out and work out a plan that's best for our patients. And so that we need collaboration, we need each other, but everyone needs to understand the limitations of their training. And we need to work collaboratively together to provide um, quality care for our patients. Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, Jeff, you wanna say anything about that at all? 
No, I, I'll leave it at that. I agree with what was just said. Okay. Okay. Well, then is this, I have this question from a James Stacks. He says, I'm, uh, besides controlling access to medical education, is it at all feasible to say that giving exclusive control of, he says morphine, I imagine he means opioids, to doctors was another of the strategies designed to empower and, and grow this small group of beneficiaries and disable alternative practitioners? Um, I don't think that's historically accurate, actually, that question. I, my understanding was, you know, doctors, uh, well, first of all, prior to the Harrison Narcotics Act, uh, which was actually opposed by the American Medical Association, um, people were able to get opium and, and other drugs legally. And then um, the, the Harrison Narcotics Act gave permission to um, physicians to prescribe those medications for medical purposes. And in fact, in the early 1920s, many doctors were being arrested because they were prescribing them uh, to treat people who they thought had developed uh, addiction or dependence on these medications. And in, in those days, the, the uh, federal law enforcement didn't consider addiction to be a medical condition. So they were arresting doctors for doing that. So I don't, I don't think that was in any way some sort of scheme by doctors to gain more control. In fact, the doctors were getting punished because they, were, they fell victim to this, this uh, new strategy, just like the patients did. Anybody else want to say anything about that or do we consider that question answered? Yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. Well, we're, we're, uh, we're out of time now. We're just about at the end of our hour. And this was a really fascinating discussion. I think it's a topic that needs to be, that needs much more attention. I'm, I'm really proud that, you know, we were able to, to, to uh, bring this subject to the fore today. Um, I'm sure many of our colleagues, Marshall, in the medical profession probably were completely unaware of this. Um, and uh, if I invite people in a, in a couple of hours, this is going to be uh, available at the Cato Institute website. So for those who didn't didn't get to see the whole thing or want to review it, it's going to be available on our website, usually within the next 24 hours. Also, visit our uh, event page for um, links to uh, suggested readings if you want to explore this topic further. And also, if some of you might have seen not a complete video, but the tail end of the video that is, was produced to uh, complement this conference, that's also going to be available on the event page when it's uh, later in the day. So uh, thank you all for attending. I want to thank our excellent participants uh, and uh, look forward to the next uh, everybody stay tuned for the next Cato Institute uh, policy forum. Thank you.